You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Turn with me in the Pew Bibles to page 1052, Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. As we continue on with our little series uh, of parables, we're going to be looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector this morning, found in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Take heart, it's a much shorter passage than the last time I preached. (laughs) Whether that has any relevance to the length of the sermon, we'll we'll see. But hear now God's word. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. God, now as we come to your word, a familiar passage, and yet, dear Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us and give us understanding of your word, that we would hear your message, your truth, your voice in this passage of Scripture. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Challenge us, dear Lord, with your word this day. And may you be glorified in this hour. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you could go to the next, there. There'll be the verse with the kind of section of uh, the parable that we'll be looking at. In this familiar parable, Jesus is talking about kingdom values. We saw last time that I was here, anyway, that parables are about the kingdom. And so here he's teaching us about kingdom values. This parable portrays for us the wonder of the gospel of grace. This is about the gospel, this parable. Jesus is seeking to do two things with this parable. First of all, he's seeking to correct a false notion of what it means to be in the kingdom, of what it means to be a believer. And secondly, he's seeking to reveal not only the hard attitude which is required to be in the kingdom, to be a Christian, but also of how that hard attitude works itself out in our lives in two very, very important things, our relationship to God and our relationship to others. The parable, as we'll see, leaves us with a question which you have to ask ourselves. 
Which one am I? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here for whatever reason, you may wonder what Christianity is all about, what it really means to be a Christian. Have you probably have some ideas, you've met Christians, and you have some notion of what it means to be a, a believer. And many people have the notion that Christianity is about doing certain things or not doing certain other things. Many in Jesus' own day had that same understanding. And Jesus is directing this parable to them and to you in order to tell them and you what it really means to be in his kingdom, to be a child of his. If you're already a believer, hopefully you also have some idea of what it means to be a Christian, to be in the kingdom of God. However, any, even many, many believers also have some false notions of what it means to be a Christian. Sure, they understand that you're saved by grace. In other words, you don't earn that salvation. That's by God's grace. You don't become a Christian by what you do. But I'm sad to say that a lot of Christians feel like, you know, maintaining a Christian walk, living the Christian life is up to you. God got you there, but then, you know, it's up to you to keep on doing things. Not to become a Christian, but to maintain or remain becomes a function of what you do or don't do. And the basic faulty view of Christianity that many non-Christians as well as Christians have is that it's a matter of performance, of what we do, what we don't do. And this parable teaches us that Christianity is not about externals. It's not about what we do or don't do. It's not about performance. It's not about achievement or merit. Being a Christian is about the mercy and grace of God and what He does and how that impacts the way you live. Like we saw last week when Isaac preached on the prodigal son or the older son, the point of the parable before us now in Luke 18 is not so much what you are to do or not do, as the case may be, but your heart attitude. Christianity is not so much about externals as it is about the core values, the heart attitude which lies behind our external behavior. We can get all caught up in describing Christianity as a kind of list of do's and don'ts and then kind of congratulate ourselves. We've got more of the boxes ticked than somebody else that we know. That's not Christianity. Christianity is God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ, plain and simple. Jesus' parable is designed to expose the real motive of our hearts when it comes to the gospel. And this parable depicts two contrasting outlooks or perspectives toward both God and others. And it does so by describing two individuals at prayer. Very interesting occasion to get this point across. Jesus describes a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisees represent those social classes that were on the in. They were in the know. They were looked up to. They were the respected ones in society. Tax collectors were people that you kind of spit when they went by you. They just were despised in every way because they were taking money from your own people and giving it to a foreign occupying power. So the tax collectors were the outsiders, the despised ones, rejected, 
by the general populace, not able to be included in the people of God in a very real sense. And we need to see right here from the outset very clearly that the contrast that Jesus is, is talking about here is not between license and legalism, doing things on your own and saying that's what it's all about, or it just doesn't matter what I do because God's grace will take care of it all, of it all and make it all good. That's not the contrast Jesus is presenting us here. Nor is it a contrast between sincerity and hypocrisy. As though if you were just sincere, it doesn't matter really what you're doing. If you're sincere, then that's okay. No. The contrast that Jesus is talking about here is one of religion on the one hand and repentance on the other. Between merit on one hand and mercy on the other. Between haughtiness before God and others and a sense of humility before God and man. Now we're going to look at this parable in, in different sections. First of all, you need to understand the, the twofold occasion of the parable. This parable is not merely about our relationship to God. We'd like it to be that, so then we don't have to worry about other people. If we're okay with God, then everything's okay. But this parable does both. It talks about our relationship to God, to be sure, but it also talks about our relationship to others. It's not just about our relationship to God in terms of justification, but it concerns our attitude and how we view other people as well. And the parable stresses the interrelatedness between our relationship to God and how we view others. It's not an either-or matter here. Either we focus on our relationship to God in a good, pious sense, or we focus on a relationship to other human beings. It's not either or, but it's a both and concern. And this twofold focus is nothing new. We see the love of God coupled with the love of neighbor. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a teaching that goes throughout Scripture. Our attitude toward God will, whether we're conscious of it, or not, it will affect our attitude toward others. And Jesus draws our attention to that connection in this parable. First of all is the relationship with God, as you look at this verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. The word translated here as confident actually means to trust in, to be persuaded of. These people to whom Jesus is addressing this parable, had put their trust in their own righteousness. And the text literally says that they put their trust in themselves, that they were righteous. So these are people who trust themselves, that they're okay. I can do this, okay? Not I can do this like digging a ditch, but I can do this to be acceptable to God. I can go into God's presence and say, here I am, aren't you glad I'm here? I'm trusting my own ability to do that. These people that Jesus has in view here think that they either already are or they can attain the standard and level of righteousness that God demands. The term righteousness has to do with reflecting God's own nature. He alone is truly righteous. And so our righteousness is to reflect that righteousness. We do that by conforming to his standards of what is right and wrong so that we can be acceptable in his sight. 
It's the level of perfection which would satisfy God and be pleasing to him so that we can go before him and say, I'm not guilty. That's what righteousness is about. How many of us could do that on our own? I don't know of only one person that can do that, namely Jesus Christ. He can go into the presence of the Father and say, I'm not, right. I'm not guilty. You can be pleasing in me. And it's only as we're in him that we can come before God with that kind of righteousness. The relationship to the others in this first verse, 9, says, and they looked down on everyone else. It's not just that they thought themselves righteous before God. That gave them the ability to say, well, you know, I'm just so much better than everybody else. So they looked down on everybody else. The parable is equally addressed to those who look down on others, who see others as insignificant, worthless, really a bother. The people who trusted in their own righteousness also looked down on others and viewed themselves not only as approved by God, but as superior to everyone around them. Both of these actions or attitudes, trust in one's self as being righteous and looking down on others, reveals a self-justification, the basis of both the righteousness as well as the superiority to others, is one's own merit. It's what I do that makes me pleasing to God and better than everybody else. Not only expose, and Jesus wants to expose that error, but also reveal to them what true kingdom values are. So he goes on in this parable. Move on to the next slide. Can you do that? Okay, the scene depicted in this parable in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two individuals, at this point seemingly equal, go to the temple to do what? To pick at each other? They go there to pray and pray to God. So they're both going to worship. And yet we'll see how different their prayers are and how little worship there is in one and how much in the other. The temple was made up of not just the building itself, but there were a series of courts. And so they would go in to the, through the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women and there stand and pray before the Lord while the sacrifice was being taken in to the holy place, offered up, and then the priests would go into that holy place with the blood, sprinkling it on the various objects in there to cleanse them and then offer up prayers as they were in there. And people would stand in the court outside praying during that time. So that's the picture. It's not here at St. Pete's that you're nice sitting in you know, comfortable pews or chairs. It's standing in a courtyard knowing that the priest is in there someplace. You can't really see him, but you know he's taking blood from a sacrifice animal and he's sprinkling it around in there. And then he's going to stand there and pray for you. That's what Hebrew worship was like. Okay? And you're standing there during that time waiting for him to come out and pronounce God's benediction that the atonement has taken place and that your sins are forgiven so that you can go home. And it's at that point that these two men come and they're praying. Okay, It's that context that they're in this environment of public worship. A lot of people view this parable as, as having to do with private prayer, you know, what you do at home by yourself and which, how you should pray and those kind of things. The context here is not private. It's totally public. 
It's in the context of the assembled people of God praying to God as the offering is being given up. And so they're praying, they're worshiping in the context of all of the people of God, worshiping before the Lord, waiting for the priest to come out. In Jewish prayer, Jews would go up to the temple and wait for that benediction when the priest came out. But they would pray during that, at time. We know the Pharisees and the tax collectors are not people that we come in contact every day with today. But the people of Jesus' day did. Pharisees were everywhere. It wasn't just a you know, special class off removed. You met them on the street. You knew a Pharisee when you bumped into one, or he wouldn't let you bump into him probably. Um, you know, you couldn't touch them. They were holy. They were the respected ones in the streets. The tax collectors were the scum. You know, you didn't want to be around them because they associated with the Romans, the op- occupying powers. You didn't like them. And these are the two men that are praying, a tax collector and a Pharisee, two polar opposite type people of individuals. They go to the temple. They go to the temple to pray to God equally. And the next two verses give us the prayer of the Pharisee, and then verse 13 records the prayer of the tax collector. So move on to the next. The prayer of the Pharisee. He stands by himself and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice and give a tenth of all I get. The fact that we're told that the Pharisee stood by himself doesn't mean that he's praying to himself or that he's all alone. He's in the context of the gathered worshipers in the temple. It's likely that he's there standing by himself because he views himself as holier and he doesn't want to get too close to those perhaps unclean people. And by touching them, himself become unclean. He's worked hard to get where he is. And he doesn't want to bump into somebody and then have it all just kind of go down the drain. He has to go, okay, now I've got to do all these rituals all over again. Hence, his standing alone is probably a gesture of religious superiority. He had worked so hard to become clean and pleasing to God, and he's not about to give that up by accidentally bumping into some unclean person. He's probably praying aloud, as was the Jewish custom, in which case it's an exercise in preaching to those around you. Now, we don't do that. We don't pray aloud. I was in um, Kyrgyzstan, and the church there, they would just say, okay, we're going to pray now, and then everybody starts praying aloud. (laughs) That's a Jewish kind of a mechanism to pray. So he's praying aloud, and what he's doing is really preaching a sermon to everybody around him. Look at me. I'm the way it should be. You want to know how to do it? Look at me. That's what his prayer is in some. He's preaching to those around him, instructing them on proper behavior in righteousness. Ostensibly, he thanks God But from the rest of his prayer, it's likely that this is just a mere formality, a familiar way to begin a prayer, nothing more. He starts off by listing three vices that he has avoided. Interestingly, he does this by means of a negative comparison, indicating that he is not like other people, and then he lists three. Well, he doesn't tell us about him. He just says, I'm not like these kind of people over here. 
We'll see that he does two things, and he mentions those, but here we don't really know about it. He's just castigating other people. In his prayer, worshiping God, he's saying, I'm not really like these. They're not worthy to be here. I am, is what he's saying. He's not like others, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or as you move along this kind of digression, he finally gets to a tax collector. It's like, oh, the worst of the worst. I'm not like him over there who's praying. I'm not like that tax collector. The idea here shows a kind of gradual decline of moral worth, robber, evildoer, adulterer, and then a tax collector. The word or that's used here, um, the robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or tax collector, are all means that they're all on a par. He's putting them all together, and he's not like any of those kind of people. references to these kind of people is that he doesn't do that. He's not like that whatsoever in all that he does. Hence, this prayer comes across as kind of an attack, a stereotype, or a public accusation of a fellow worshiper. Now, just put yourself in this position. You're here to worship God, but your prayers are about other people, how bad they are how you're not like them. That's what this Pharisee is doing. And all of this comes out and is born out of a preconceived notion in the mind of the Pharisee about his own self-righteousness. He thinks of himself as so good that he's better than these other people. He goes on and then switches to some positive moral practices which he clearly views as being meritorious. That is, he mentions these things because he thinks... They have caused him to gain favor with God. And these two actions provide the basis for his own self-righteousness as far as the Pharisee is concerned. First, the first meritorious practice that he mentions is to fast twice a week. Now, there is mention in the Old Testament of a fast associated with the Day of Atonement, once a year. How often is he doing it? Twice a week. What he's saying is here, I'm going above and beyond anything you can imagine as being something that's really holy, okay? The good people do it once a year. I do it twice a week. So I'm out there, okay? And he's thanking God. He's out there like that. The second practice that he mentions in his prayer is that he gives a tenth of all that he gets. And once again, in the Old Testament, we have references of people tithing. The Levites were to live off of the tithe of God's people because they didn't have an inheritance in the land. So we have all kinds of examples, but there's no explicit command with the exception of maybe Malachi 3 to tithe. Tithing was something people did, and it had to do with certain crops and limited things. The Pharisees say, again, I tithe on everything I get. I'm so much better than these other people that only tithe on a little bit. I tithe on everything. And again... It's just to show that he's over the top and how pleasing he is and how superior he is and how acceptable his deeds should be to God. And while we start to get a sense of the haughty attitude that lies behind this prayer of the Pharisee, in itself there's really nothing wrong with it. 
Nor is there anything wrong with the things that the Pharisees are doing. It's good to not be a robber, an evildoer, adulterer, and so forth. It's good to tithe. It's good to fast. Jesus doesn't condemn him for those things. It's the hard attitude that lies behind those things that's the problem. The primary focus of Jewish prayer involved giving thanks to God for all of his gifts, as well as making petitions for the worshiper's needs. This Pharisee really does neither. Even though he uses the expression, I thank you, it's really not about thanks. It's about what he's doing, what he's showing God how good he is. It's about self-aggrandizement. He also fails to acknowledge who God is in his prayer. We saw in the passage read from Samuel how much David talked about the sovereign Lord, about who he is, what he's done. There's none of that in this prayer. He says, I thank you, Lord, but then it's about him. This prayer is all about me, not about God, who he is, what he's done, his attributes, his deeds. And finally, and most tellingly, what's omitted here? What's missing? There's no mention that he's a sinner. There's no mention that he's in need of God's salvation. Not anywhere is there a mention of any way that he is a sinner, that he's undeserving, that he needs God's grace and is there to receive it. He's there to show God how good he is. That's it. To summarize the Pharisee's prayer, we see that he stands by himself lest he become contaminated by others. And he kind of congratulates himself on how good he is. By comparison to others, he's way better. He utters a kind of a scathing criticism of the tax collector, and he brags of his superior piety. This prayer is all about him, about externals. It's not about God. It's not about sin and the need of salvation. It's not about humility before God and dependence, total dependence on God's mercy and grace. It's a picture of someone who is self-satisfied, who is confident in his behavior, and that that behavior will make him acceptable before God. Someone is sure that salvation is all about performance, what he does. It's a picture of someone who, because of his assumed secure relation with God based on what he does or doesn't do, feels that he's far superior to those around him, especially the tax collector. It's a description of someone who, while appearing to be supremely religious, is actually quite far from God. It's a description of a heart that is focused on self, on duty, on externals, on doing, rather than on God and the wonder of his mercy and grace. But then the parable goes on and switches to the tax collector and his prayer. Again, he stands a bit off. You can switch the slide. Okay, there we go. He stands off, but his is not a standing off because of his superior understanding of himself. Rather, it shows us the sense of unworthiness that he has to draw near to God and to stand together with the other of God's people to worship him. Even at a distance, we're told that he would not even look up to heaven. Jews, for fear of violating the third commandment, often substituted the word heaven for God so that they didn't take God's name in vain. So when it says here he's not looking up to heaven, it's not, he's not looking up to God. 
Here we see that he is so ashamed of himself and his sin. He doesn't want to raise his eyes. That's an expression of abject humility and brokenness before a holy God. That humility, that brokenness, is further emphasized by the fact that the tax collector beats his breast. Proper position of prayer in the Jews was you have your arms crossed across your chest. And we see this man are starting to beat his chest because that's where his heart was, where the sin comes from. He says, beating his chest before God. And then he finally confesses his sin by saying, I am the sinner, literally, in the text. That's all he can say. His petition is very, very brief and yet unbelievably significant. The expression, have mercy on me, literally means, Lord, atone for my sins. There's another word that's used for mercy, and that's not the one that's used here. The idea here, the point for us in understanding this parable is that the cry of the tax collector, his petition, as he stood praying while the blood from the sacrifice was taken into the holy place to make atonement, and the priests were interceding for him, his cry was, Lord, atone my sin. I'm a sinner. I need that atonement. The plea for God's atoning mercy is coupled with an open admission of his sin. He is the sinner, the one deserving death, not deserving to be in God's presence, not deserving fellowship with God's people, one who owes a debt that could never be repaid, one having no merit of his own. He knows his sin, and he confesses that sin publicly before God. There is nothing in him that could possibly merit or earn God's favor. He knows that apart from God's atoning mercy, he has no hope of salvation. So he cries out for the mercy and grace of God. But this prayer too omits certain things. It's not just the Pharisee that admits things. The tax collector also admits things. He says nothing about his own worth his own righteousness before God. He makes absolutely no claim of merit for himself other than the fact that he's a sinner before God. There is no reference to anyone else here, not even an oblique allusion to superiority over others. There's absolutely no attempt made to even appear better than any of the other worshipers. So when we summarize this prayer of the tax collector, we see an individual broken under the weight of his own sin. We see a person who realizes that it's his own sin which demands death before a holy God, a debt which he cannot possibly pay. We see a heart attitude characterized by a sense of true repentance. We see sorrow and shame over sin a deep sense of unworthiness, a dire need for salvation. We see an individual rejecting any notion of self-justification or self-righteousness. We see a man who realizes that he has sinned and that he cannot, through his own efforts, either change or stop sinning or atone for his sin. And yet we see a person who knows that his only hope of salvation 
is to be found in the mercy and the pardoning grace of God. So he cries out in faith to the Lord to have mercy on him. In the last verse, we have Jesus' interpretation of this. Hopefully, you're following it and you have an interpretation already, but Jesus gives us an interpretation. In the last verse, we all know this parable and we know how it ends. It's familiar to us. But to the people of Jesus' day, this was a shock. It's like throwing cold water in their face. They all thought the hero is, of course, the Pharisee. He's the good guy. He's the one that Jesus is going to say receives God's blessing and justification. Jesus doesn't do that. He flips it all the way around. Most parables have a kind of a zinger at the end, a a kind of a twist that shocks people out of their status quo kind of conclusions about reality and then poses a question to them that just goes deep into their thinking and their lives. And that's what this parable does as well. This shocking change of order and the conclusion where the tax collector is the one that's justified You can almost hear the people gasp as Jesus says that. That's not what they expected. Jesus maintains the twofold purpose of this parable, although when he tells them that, and his interpretation addresses both the question of God's of the relationship to God as well as the relationship to others. Jesus tells us that when the sacrifice had been made and the benediction had been pronounced. And these two go back home, it's the tax collector that's justified. The one who with a broken heart and true faith and repentance came confessing his unworthiness. His sins are forgiven. Implied here is that the Pharisee was not justified. The one who came trusting in his own self-righteousness goes home unjustified. And justified is a nice religious-sounding word that Christians are apt to use. But what does it mean? And how does it tie back into all of the rest of this parable? Justified means to cancel a debt owed, to render a verdict of not guilty, to pronounce someone righteous here. It's a forensic term. It's applied to legal pronouncements. And in this case, it's God pronouncing this tax collector not guilty. Sweeter words could not be spoken. It was the tax collector whose sin is atoned so that God could pronounce him just or right in his sight. It was not the Pharisee with his external performance and his self-righteousness, but rather the tax collector who went home saved, we would say. It was the atoning mercy and grace of God that accomplished that. The message of this parable is the message of the rest of Scripture. Salvation is by grace, through faith. It's not something that's earned or merited by what we do. It's a gift of God's grace. And with the last portion of this passage where Jesus says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, he ties together the relationship to God and the relationship with others. On the one hand, if we exalt ourselves, first of all, with regard to God, being confident in our own righteousness, as the Pharisee Pharisee did, ultimately, God himself will humble us. 
But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, as did the tax collector, the Lord will exalt us. He will justify or save us by His grace. And on the other hand, if we exalt ourselves with regard to others, looking down on them, the Lord will humble us. But if we humble ourselves with regard to others, the Lord will exalt us. The heart attitude that Jesus is holding up here as a model for us in this parable is one of abject humility before God, a recognition of personal sin which results in utter unworthiness before him. It's one of coming before the holy God in recognition of how deserving we are of his wrath because of the vileness, the the perverseness, the offensiveness of our sin in his sight. It's one of realizing to the very core of our being just how undeserving we are of the mercy and grace of God and of being overwhelmed by that reality. Is that why you came here this morning? To be overwhelmed with the reality of your sin as you come into the presence of the Holy God? But it's also about a heart attitude which flows from that reality and causes us to humble ourselves before others and value them above ourselves. Jesus is here declaring that the kind of righteousness that's acceptable to God and necessary for salvation does not come from our own efforts but is a gift of God's mercy and grace made possible through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and received in humble repentance and faith. In the context of this parable, it was the Old Testament kind of sacrifice. But it's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's speaking this, who would humble himself to the point of death on the cross to take our place so that we might believe in him trust in his atoning work and that alone. The point of this parable is that salvation is not a matter of what we do or don't do. It's not a matter of our performance or merit. Rather, salvation is by grace. It transforms our relationship not only with God, but with others. And I want you to picture this scene. You're there standing in this crowd in the court of the women before the outer court where the temple is. You've seen the priest go in with the blood of the animal that he sacrificed. He comes out, he raises his hands and pronounces the benediction, God's blessing on you, which is saying your sins are now forgiven because the blood has been shed. But beloved, it wasn't just the blood of some lamb that was shed. It's the blood of the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, not because of what we do, but because of what he has already done once and for all. It's the joy, the hope of the gospel that's being proclaimed here. And the scene is a real one. But what about us? As we conclude, do you have confidence in your own righteousness before God? Whether it's to earn your salvation or maintain your salvation? Is there a tinge of Pharisee that kind of percolates up inside of you when you find yourself doing some good thing? Saying, you know, I'm glad I'm not not like these other people around me. I'm I'm okay. I'm, I'm pretty good. Do you congratulate yourself 
that you're not like others, that you're really not that bad after all, and God should be proud to have you on his team. That's the Pharisee. Or do you humble yourself before God, confessing your sin, your unworthiness, your inability to please God by what you do, no matter how hard you try, your dependence on him and his mercy and his grace for salvation? Do you cry out to him in repentance and faith, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? And how do you view others? It's not just a matter of your relationship to God, it's your relationship to others. When you're right with God, that impacts how you look at others. How do you look at others? Do you look down on other people? Say, no, 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 not me. How about those that you, for whatever reason, view as inferior on the grounds of their intellect, their social status or rank, their occupation, their age, their race, their gender, their economics, their education, or their religious practices and devotion. You ever find yourself looking down on somebody else? You need to go back to this parable. If we cry out, Lord, have mercy to me, a sinner, we're no better than anybody else. And that's got to show in the way we treat others. Do you willingly humble yourself before others? Or do you seek to find some way to exalt yourself over them? I know I play that game all the time. I don't want to make somebody else look better than me. I want to look better than them. But I'm a sinner in God's sight, just like everybody else. So we have to close with a question again. Which one are you? Are you the Pharisee? Or are you the tax collector? May the Lord himself give us an overwhelming sense of just how sinful we really are, how deserving of his wrath. And may that sense drive us to throw ourselves by faith on the mercy and grace of Christ and his finished work of atonement. May it cause us to cease trying to gain God's acceptance through our own performance and to rest secure in the finished work of Jesus for our salvation. And may the wonder of that salvation and that grace so overwhelm us that we look at others, not looking down at them, but as better than than, that they are better than us, so that we can serve them as an expression of our thanks to God for the salvation that is ours in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how we do need your grace, how we do need your mercy. Have mercy on us, for we have sinned against you and you only. May what Jesus did be our only hope of salvation. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk 
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.